Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to take a look at some of the pioneer history of Lansing through the eyes of a man who wrote about his experiences with his parents as they settled in Lansing in the 1840s. And we're also going to tap into a little bit of the mindset of the early pioneer settlers. So let's venture back in time together into the story of yesteryear. So there was a series of books written that was published in 1911, and it was called Pioneering the Upper Midwest, Books from Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And as part of this collection, there was this writing by Daniel Mevis, and it was entitled Pioneer Recollections, Semi-Historic Sidelights on the Early Days of Lansing. He begins his book with a chapter called Struggles of Backwoodsmen, a tale of the life in Lansing when wolves howled near doorsteps. My parents were endowed with a nomadic disposition, so to speak, much of their time being spent on the road. It took but little argument to convince father that there was a better town ahead. Accordingly, in the summer of 1847, they took the trail to Erie, Pennsylvania, but were blown into Buffalo by the greatest storm ever known on Lake Erie. They boarded the first steamer out, which was bound up the lakes. The captain asked father where he wanted to go. His father responded, oh, almost anywhere. Where are you going? To Detroit and up, the captain answered. All right, we'll go too. And in due time, we were landed at Detroit, which appeared to be quite a town. So they started out from Detroit on their journey. The household goods all being well-packed and in movable condition, it was decided to go on as far as we could get public conveyance. We boarded a car for Pontiac, there being a little railroad between the two towns. When they refer to cars during this time, they're not talking about automobiles. Obviously, they're talking about railroad cars. And while here, we first heard of the new capital to be Michigan City, in the interior of the state. The head of the family soon decided to follow in the wake of the receding capital and accordingly accompanied by my elder brother started out through the woods in the direction of the new seat of government. The two days journey brought the party to a little log grocery near the North Lansing Dam and being a newcomer and prospective settler Father was soon taken in tow by a long-whiskered gentleman whose business, it would seem, was to sell lots. After a few preliminary remarks, he frankly asked the old gentleman to take something. Father took, and the long-whiskered gentleman proceeded to elaborate on the great advantages to be obtained by locating at the business center of the new town, claiming, of course, that this dam really settled the question." Factories, mills, etc. would be in short time be erected, and the whole length of the mill race, a sawmill being already in active operation, and so forth. Take something, uncle, was what was said to his father. Of course, father took again and was soon persuaded to buy a lot just as near that dam as possible. But the boy dissuaded his parent from such prompt action, recommending that they look around a little more before deciding. 
having heard on the side that there was another town being built farther up the river at the confluence of the Cedar and Grand, they, on the following day, took the trail for Upper Town, where Bush, Thomas, and Lee were building a city. They were cordially welcomed by Mr. Thomas, who properly asked Father to take something, which Father did. Then Mr. Thomas told the old gentleman how fortunate he was not to buy a lot down at that end. Of course, there was the sawmill, but mind you, the timber in that locality will be all sawed up in a few years, he said. And down goes their dinky little town. While here, you see, we are located on high, dry ground at the juncture of these two great rivers, and we will, without a doubt, be at the head of navigation from the Grand River and will eventually be dredged from the Grand Rapids to this point, giving easy and cheap transportation for the whole Grand River Valley. And this will be the terminal of a line of river craft sure to come, sure to come. Take advantage, stranger. It is needless to say that Father was convinced and thought he wanted a lot as near the mouth of the Cedar River as he could get it. However, the boy again induced his father to withhold his decision until they had investigated the middle ground, later called Middletown, where the capital was being erected. But with talking with one or two settlers, learned that there would be never anything doing at this point. Perhaps in time, a few residences and maybe another state building or two. By this time, in view of the fact that at the end of two short weeks from the time he left Pontiac, mother with the children and the two wagon loads of household furniture would be upon him expecting to find him settled and a cabin ready to occupy. The head of the family decided to act without further delay and resolved to buy at once, which he did. He selected a lot at Washington Avenue and Saginaw Street. He built a queer home. This he did in order to be near the mill and where he would be able to obtain plenty of wood for all time to come for the mere cutting. Procuring the necessary help, the cabin was built, but none too soon, for at the appointed time the wagons came and we were at home at 623 North Washington Avenue. After fording the river below the dam, we picked our way up the avenue between log heaps and cradle knolls and brush heaps and stumps. The extra sideboards on the wagons served to make the doors, and we brought windows with us. It may be asked how we liked that remarkable change from city life to a cot in a vast wilderness. Oh, fine. It was not only novel, but really romantic in its way. Serenaded every night in summer by the denizens of an immense frog pond near the cabin, and with clouds of mosquitoes indoors and outdoors, adding their plaintive thrills to the grand jubilee of welcome to the early pioneer. And these and other romantic sights and sounds, such as the snarling of wolves, the distant cry of the panther, like a woman in distress, and watching the pretty door as they fearlessly browsed among the newly made brush heaps, made for us a new and novel experience. Those doors were perfectly safe as far as we were concerned, not a gun in the place and not a man who knew how to shoot one as we had it. I have heard Father say that he never shot but one gun in his life, an old musket, when backed up against a brick wall. The wall seemed to stand the shock well, but not so with Father. We were, however, frightened later on when one evening in early winter the cabin door opened softly and in stalked four big Indians who, after giving their usual grunt, proceeded to spread their blankets upon the clay earth and lie down, 
heads to the fire and remain quietly there until morning. Rising at the first peep of day, they filed out in the same order as they came in, giving us again the grunt. It is needless to say that the only sleeping done in the cabin that night was by those four Indians. We soon found out that all of our fears were needless, as we were frequently visited in like manner, as night would sometimes overtake the Indians from tracking bears. The animals had a long and well beaten runway from northern Wisconsin south to the head of Lake Michigan and then northeasterly through the Old Maid Swamp at the head of the Thornapple and crossing the state road, now Saginaw Street, passing through the Chandler or Big Marsh and then north through the Saginaw Valley to the Straits. They were certainly not in pursuit of deer for they could pick them up almost anywhere these days. I have seen bears on this same runway but never felt like interfering with their progress. So the Native Americans were working hard at uh, pursuing the bears, and I guess apparently they would sometimes lose track of time and seek the nearest log cabin and just uh, make themselves at home, which is an interesting part of the, the time period in the culture to look at. Father often called us children up in the early morning to look out of the window and see the pretty deer feeding on the tender buds of the recently cut treetops, while he replenished the fire in the great stone fireplace with its stick and clay chimney, first the big backlog, and then on great end and irons on the forestick, or rather log, completing the structure with smaller stuff and then swinging out the crane hanging on the iron tea kettle. This meant breakfast, and we were all too happy soon enough when we could breathe in the aroma of bear meat or venison frying in the skillet on the coals. This meat, generally bought of the Indians, was cheap, two York shillings or a Spanish quarter, buying a saddle of venison or a large piece of bear meat, and either was toothsome with our corn cakes and gravy. I am sometimes asked occasionally by some of the rising generation, were there any Indians here, Uncle Dan, when you came? Oh yes, there certainly were, but not many, perhaps about 100 or more, known to the settlers as the Okomos tribe. They resided for some time, we were told, on the Cedar River about seven miles east of Lansing, which would account for the name of Okomos given to that locality. For many years, they were in the habit of drifting into town in small parties, disposing of various articles of their handiwork, such as baskets, fancy boxes made of bark, usually of the elm, and decorated with partly colored porcupine quills, buckskin moccasins decorated with beads, and in their seasons, whortleberries, cranberries, maple sugar, deer skins, fans, and occasionally a few wolf heads on which they obtained a bounty. Now, if you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts, there are a few stories I've given about wolves and the bounties that were put on wolves during this time period. And there were a lot of different localities, towns, and villages that would put bounties and they would draw in tax funds and stuff to give bounties to get hunters to get rid of wolves because they were interfering with livestock and that sort of thing. And so this area must have had bounties that were uh, offered and the Native Americans were taking advantage of it just like other hunters would be doing. And he goes on to say that their old warrior, Chief Okamos, on account of his advanced age and feebleness of frame, had long since delegated the chieftainship to his youngest son, Jim, who was quite a gentleman. He had been educated in an Indian school and spoke English quite fluently, the eldest son, John, being a dissolute and all-around 
bad man lost his right to the succession. The whites respected Chief Jim highly and his word, as his word was of more value than a check at the Macomb County Bank. Quiet, genial, and good-looking, he always seemed to have the affairs of the tribe well in hand. His will was their law, from which there was no appeal. Though quite a young boy, I became interested in these prehistoric people and soon became acquainted with the boys, with whom I later spent many a summer day ranging through the bush, catching black snakes along the riverbanks, and slinging them into the stream, shooting at birds and squirrels with the bow and arrow, and perhaps winding up the day's frolic with a swim. I was always a welcome visitor to the camp for many years, the whole tribe were in the habit of camping on the Cooley Farm, nearly opposite Waverly Park. They camped there for a supply of venison and cured it on the spot. Their method of capturing the deer was not by shooting. They would wait until dark and then start out, two Indians in a canoe, one sitting on the stern and the other on his knees in the bow, where a burning pine knot served as a jacklight. Armed with a tomahawk and a scalping knife, canoe number one would glide noiselessly up the river where the deer would be found standing in the water for protection from the mosquitoes. Mr. Deer would gaze intently at the light while the canoe, guided by the man in the stern, who did the paddling, would quietly steal upon them and at the opportune moment, the man on the prow would, with his tomahawk, strike the deer on the head, killing him instantly. This done, the Indians would drop quietly into the water, hip deep probably, and with their knives disembowel the animal and place him in the canoe. This done in less time than it takes to tell it, the Indians would about face in the canoe and return to the landing. Canoe number two, in the meantime, was passing up and doing the same thing, then number three, and so on, so that the following morning one could count from three to six deer lying on the bank, waiting the attention of the squaws who proceeded to skin, cut up, and cure the venison. The manner of curing was this. A fire was started behind an old rotten log. Wet leaves and moss was raked over it to make a dense smoke. Sticks were sharpened and thrust into the ground beside the log, and pieces of meat impaled upon the upper ends over the smudge. In this way, the Indians, staff of life, was made impervious to the fly pest or anything else except the ravenous appetite of their own people. The skins were treated much in the same way. Tall sticks were driven into the ground, and the hides, after their hair had been removed, stretched upon these and a smudge maintained under them until they were thoroughly smoked through and through. They were frequently taken off and rubbed through the hands of the two squaws having the work in charge. I often visited this camp, spending nearly the entire day with Miss Okamos and her elder sister, Mrs. John Turnip, who seemed delighted to entertain the Nechwiwi Shokimon in their private teepee, where they were sure to be busily engaged in making fancy articles such as pretty baskets and boxes of bark finely decorated from red, white, and blue quills of the porcupine, fancy leggings and moccasins, etc. They feasted me on venison and quashkon bread and found great sport in teaching me their language. Long before I cared for it, the sun would settle upon the western horizon and Chief Jim would ask me if I didn't want to go home now. Of course I did. That was the proper thing to do. He would whistle and was soon surrounded by half a dozen husky lads all ready to do his bidding. 
detailing two to take me home, he would bid me goodbye and come again. And these young bucks would bring me safely over the rapids. So that just gives you a little bit of an insight into one young boy's experience in the pioneer settlement days of Lansing. And there's much more to this story, and maybe I'll do future episodes on some of his other anecdotes if you find it interesting. But looking at the pioneer history, one of the things that impresses me the most is that in order for these people to have made it as far as they did, and you have to really reflect on the time, they came with what they could carry in a wagon, often carried by oxes in the early days, and then they had to settle on a piece of land that they purchased or filed a claim on and build a place to live, set up a means to eat, which often involved farming or hunting, and it took quite a powerful, spirited individual to make this happen. And when we reflect on our own lives in present day, it really is that true believer that is the one that succeeded as a pioneer. In modern day, if you were to embark upon a task and you're not really a true believer in something, you're not likely to be successful in doing anything. If you're constantly telling yourself that you can't do something and that it is impossible and the odds are against you, then you yourself are not going to be successful in accomplishing that task that you're setting out on. But can you imagine the stakes of the pioneer as he or she ventured into the sheer wilderness, not knowing what they were going to experience when they arrived there, and they could have experienced anything from wild animals to harsh weather, infertile soil, and any other number of problems within the realm of a pioneer experience, including illness and poor health and the accident without access to medical care. All of these types of factors made it a dangerous activity. Today, I think we take things too lightly when we venture into the unknown, when we're going to take on a large project or task, which is something that I've run into personally lately, working with volunteers trying to put together a museum, for example. They get overwhelmed with the vast size of the task and begin to venture into an escape plan or the thoughts of failure and thoughts that they can't succeed and they require someone to come rescue them and they are not capable and so forth. And you always have to get them to stand back and take a breath and recognize that this is much easier than what has come before. And the people that came before us had a much more dangerous road ahead than anything that we are taking on in present day. And when you read these pioneer stories, you really connect with that in history, that the challenges that we face in our daily life, although different, and the context of history is different, there's less danger ahead of us in many ways than they faced. And perhaps maybe it's the absence of danger that makes our life seem more dramatic. Who knows? It could very well be that that is the, the main difference, that when we are in a challenging environment where things are dangerous all around, that you are placed in a frame of mind that you have to succeed or else, and you drive yourself spiritually and mentally to make that a success because failure is not an option. And I look back at the pioneers that settled this state of Michigan as having been in that position themselves. 
And there are stories that I've covered on my YouTube channel and this podcast as well of people that didn't succeed and they failed and they had miserable experiences and some of them died in the process. But there are also many, many success stories and many amazing people when you look at the pioneer era that created these communities in southwest Michigan and they overcame incredible obstacles in doing so. And they started out from humble beginnings and they became successful, prosperous individuals that left a legacy for their family to continue in the wake of their existence. And so that is part of the inspiration that I get from reading about pioneer collections and pioneer history and hearing their story and really getting it from their perspective. And I believe that this particular writing is a good example of just that. The early boyhood experiences of Daniel Mevis in this writing, which was ultimately published in 1911 when he was an older man, as it came from the 1840s. And it's a very interesting documentation of the struggles of the early pioneer and the early experiences, as well as some of the many misconceptions about that period of almost 200 years ago in the state. So I always find these stories to be quite fascinating, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the little fragment of this story that I shared today. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And certainly encourage other fans to follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple. And if you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Facebook. My Facebook page is Michael Delaware Author. And I would encourage you to go on over there and like that page and become a follower because you will be connected firsthand with a lot of the activities and things that I'm doing in the community, as well as being notified of when my book comes out in March. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always contact me directly either through the Facebook page or on my website, michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you'd like to meet me in person, come out to Tales of Christmas Past. This is a performance that I'm doing with some other volunteers for the Christmas season on December 16th at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And the tickets went on sale this week. And I'll put the link to the tickets in the show note descriptions of this episode so that you can pick up tickets early. I am already seeing sales of tickets, which is quite amazing how popular that show was last year. We've already started seeing a lot of online sales already of the tickets this early, and we're two months out from the program. So they definitely will probably be two sold-out shows, and if we do sell out the first two shows before Thanksgiving, I have a commitment from most of the staff to do a third show on that Sunday. So hopefully we'll be able to pull that off as well. And all the proceeds to these programs go to support the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.